My name's Catherine, and I'm a member of this church. So the reading this morning is from Nehemiah, and it's chapter 3, and it starts on page 485 of the Bibles that you have in front of you. So I'm reading chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and then over the page, and verses 28 to 32. So Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Bezadiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uzziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harimaph, made repairs opposite his house, and Hashush, son of Hezbaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkajar, son of Harim and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now moving on to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of their own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zelaph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkajar, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Yes, round of applause was richly deserved for that reading. Well, have you ever heard that read before, folks? Um, I haven't. Um, it's not the easiest text to read or preach on. But I think it is Donald Trump's favorite chapter in the whole Bible because they build the wall. Well, it forces us to go back to uh, what we understand the Bible to be. 
uh, it is a very human book, the Bible. Uh, we don't believe it was written on golden plates by God himself. It wasn't dictated by God. We have to understand something of the language and the form and the structure of a text. And this list was probably compiled by the high priest Eliashib, who we see mentioned in verse 1, and then preserved in the temple archives. Uh, as Andrew Page says, you might not want to know that, but I thought I'd say it anyway. <laughs> but um, this rebuilding of the wall took place in about the year 445 BC, when the Persian Empire was the great superpower. And the language reflects the period. In the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there are lots of Persian words written in the text. And the point of this is that the Bible is written by humans, and it has human editors, and it's full of human details, including all the divisions of Judah into the administrative centers that the Persians had established. But the Bible is also a divine book. And I think about this every day. I think about how strange it is to believe this. But the Bible itself says that all of Scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos, God-breathed. And all of it is useful for teaching and instructing and correcting and training. And it's one large story, one large narrative, all written by God and all leading to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of it all. You see, we know that this Nehemiah, this man who is a cupbearer for the king of Babylon, of, of, uh, in, in Babylon, and came, to, uh, came to, back to Jerusalem, points forward to the ultimate Nehemiah. Here is a man who is in the palace, but Jesus himself was completely safe, and he went into danger to identify with his people and to alleviate their shame. And it's Jesus who comes to make us citizens of the ultimate city, which is described in the New Testament as the New Jerusalem, a city that's cosmopolitan and flourishing and alive, a city of God's people. In Isaiah 60, verse 18, we read, Salvation will surround you like city walls, and praise will be on the lips of all who enter there. I think of that great Augustus Top Lady hymn, which says, Walls of salvation surround the souls he delights to defend. But Jerusalem is a sign of something bigger. Walls of salvation that protect us from sin and death itself. So folks, we need to put Nehemiah into the big story. So as we dive in today, it's a bit like diving into the middle of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, you don't really get it unless you have a sense of the rest of the story. I call that using the Bible timeline tool. It's very important to use this tool because contrary to what Donald Trump might say, it's not our job to build a wall or call down curses on our enemies. Nehemiah was operating at a different stage in history, a stage where the people of God existed as a nation state and they needed a capital with a wall around it. No wall, no jurisprudence, no justice. No wall, just anarchy. No wall, no security, no security, no economy, no economy, no sustainable life. So they needed a wall. So what's this chapter three all about? Well, 
it uh, details for us the anti-clockwise renewal of the walls of Jerusalem, starting and finishing at the Sheep Gate. And this is really symbolic of a renewal of the people of God generally. See, the story of the people of Israel is a story of covenant, which means a people that pledge themselves to God, and God pledged himself to them. And there were terms of this covenant. They needed to follow God and obey God, but they didn't. And they were humiliated, and their city was burnt to the ground. But after this time of failure and humiliation, we have a time of return and renewal and recovery. Now, we, in our context here in Southampton, are also seeking renewal. That's why we've chosen this series in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one book in the original Hebrew. You see, we've noticed that the pandemic did something to us. We couldn't come together to encourage one another, and many of us struggled. Differences between people in society and in the church were, were exacerbated during the pandemic. But now we're seeking renewal. So, what I noticed first in this text, or about the text, is that in times of renewal, there's a sense of urgency. And I'm using a tone and feel tool here. I'm looking at the text as a whole, and I notice the sense of urgency in the text. And when you get to the, where the wall is rebuilt, if you look at chapter 6, verse 15, it says that the rebuilding took 52 days. 52 days. A lot was accomplished in a short space of time. And there's a pace to Nehemiah's account. Did you notice? Next to him was this person. Next to him was this person. And they built, and their daughters built. But these nobles didn't put their shoulders to the task. But next to him, he built. And the goldsmiths built. And the merchants built. There's a pace to the text. And one of the marks of a renewal that is sent by God and God-inspired is that there is an urgency. Not that everybody's in a frenzy of activity, burning themselves out, but when you look at church history and Bible history, sometimes God comes and he visits his people and there's a spirit of renewal and people become very aware of the urgency of eternal things. Prayer becomes more urgent for people. The reality of God and heaven and hell becomes more urgent, and change happens quite quickly. Let me give you one example. In New England in the 1730s, there was a renewal, a God-sent renewal, where communities quite suddenly became aware of the presence of God. This has happened in my own country of Wales several times, a renewal sent by God, and they become quite aware of the brevity of their own lives and their need to be right with God. This is how Jonathan Edwards describes it in 1730. God seems to have gone out of his usual way in the quickness of his work and the swift progress the Spirit has made in the operations on the hearts of many. It is wonderful that persons should be so suddenly and yet so greatly changed. Many have been taken from a loose and careless way of living and seized with strong convictions of their guilt before God and in very little time, all things have become new. In times of renewal, God puts eternity 
back in the hearts of people's hearts and minds, and not just individuals, but whole communities sometimes sense this urgency that replaces a spiritual sloth. So that's the first thing that I notice about the text as a whole. Secondly, in times of renewal, there's a sense of unity or reality of unity. So what you notice in the text is a repeated phrase that comes up in verse 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, all those verses. Next to him, next to him. And what we see in the text is that different classes of people from different regions and different demographics and different trades all come together and they build the wall together. So, for example, in, in verse 8, Uziel, son of uh, Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. There are all these different trades coming together, and uh, merchants and goldsmiths and perfumers. In verse 1, you've got the priests. In verse 2, you've got people from Jericho. Verse 5, people from Tekoa. Verse 18, people from Kela. Not an exhaustive list. There's no bakers mentioned here. Maybe they were baking the bread for the, for the people building the wall. But the point is that building the wall isn't something that the clergy can do. Clergy are in there, but everybody's doing it. They're all in it together. Verse 12 mentions that a fellow's daughters were building the wall. So we see that the rebuilding and renewal must be done by the whole people of God. And so renewal here at Above Bar Church isn't, isn't the sole responsibility of the leadership team. Uh, it's, we're all in it together. In lockdown, we suffered from a sort of consumer church. <clears throat> we couldn't get away from it, really. Church put on by the staff. And despite our best efforts, you know, church during lockdown was you know, pretty rubbish. We worked really hard, but it's because church is about all the people together. It's not watching a screen diminishes church. We're a priesthood of all believers. That's how the New Testament describes the church. It says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a royal priesthood. You are priests. If you know God, a priest represents God to people and represents people before God. And the people of God in the New Testament are described as priests. Now, I'm praying that since we're in it together, a lot, a lot more people that uh, call Above Bar Church their home would become members We've got an important meeting next, next week, but I'm praying for more people to be members, and I've printed out 100 membership forms. Um, if you are interested in what is that, what does it mean to become a member, come and see me afterwards. I'm hoping to speak to a lot of people. Okay, now, I love the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in my hometown of Aberavon during a time of God-sent renewal. And Lloyd-Jones was known as the doctor. He was a Harley Street doctor. He was going to become surgeon to the king. But he gave it all up to be a pastor 
in my hometown of Aberavon. Now, I love Aberavon. I went to school there, played rugby and cricket there, but it's a filthy place, Aberavon. And Martin Lloyd-Jones went there, and he said, I, I want to know wh- why I would rather talk about Jesus with the poorest fisherwoman in Aberavon than talk about medicine with the upper class. It's because he felt a bond with people who weren't like him socially and educationally. It's because for Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a follower of God first. He was a Christian first before he was anything else. And so are you. We've, we've seen where we all come from. So many people from, from Africa and Asia and Europe, different parts of the world. But you're a Christian first before you're black or white or Iranian or Hispanic. You're those things second. Because of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that comes in you when you follow God, you feel a bond with people who are next to you, building his kingdom. See, every Christian has a a ministry, and every Christian is is a missionary in a way. That's how the New Testament describes it. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the church as a body. And he says, we've all got gifts in this body to each person a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And so we need all hands on deck. We need everybody. And we need your gifts as we seek renewal here at Above Bar Church. See, if God has drawn a few hundred people into a church, you're not here by accident. And there are certain ways that you can build up the kingdom of God. There's a work for Jesus only you can do. Nehemiah was an administrator. I wish I was better at that. An administrator comes and says, here's the task, here's how to divide people up, and here's how to keep people on task. And we absolutely need that gift in the church for the church to be built up. So we're going to advertise for a manager of operations next week, I think. But every single person in the body of Christ is necessary to do the work of God. We're all in it together. And right now, we're gathered here to encourage our hearts so we can scatter tomorrow to the mission that God has for us in our workplaces and our families and our neighborhoods. And in so doing, we are partnering God in building up the walls of salvation. So in this text, I notice a sense of urgency. I notice the reality of unity. And finally, I notice the vision for the city. And in times of renewal, there is a vision for the city. In chapter 1, and all the way through this account, we see Nehemiah's vision, a renewed vision for the city of Jerusalem. I wonder if he meditated on Psalm 48, you know, where it describes Zion as the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. God is in a citadels. And yet in chapter 1, remember, he, um, he asked about the city And he heard this news. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And as he prayed, he had this vision to renew the life of the city. And as we seek renewal, we need to have a genuine, renewed love 
for the place that we're called to live in and reach rather than hostility and indifference to it. And we need a vision for the city and to pray into that vision. And that's where we need partnership with other churches. We're not doing this alone. But when God pours out his spirit in, in, in God-inspired renewal, churches come together, not just not in a pretense of unity, but with a real vision for the city. And I'm really humbled by the Christian community here in Southampton uh, that love the city that want to alleviate food poverty, that want to reach out to all sectors of society and all the nations that, are, that have come to this city with the hope of the gospel. The city is a magnifying glass that brings out the best and the worst of human nature. That's why the Bible depicts cities as places of perversion and violence, but also as places of refuge and peace where human life thrives in its cosmopolitan variety and beauty. If you skip to Nehemiah 7, verse 4, you'll read that the city of Jerusalem was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. There wasn't a thriving city life. He'd rebuilt the walls, but there was hardly anyone living in it. So he organized 10% of the nation to move back into the city. You can read about that in chapter 11. The walled safety of Jerusalem allowed a far more stable life than was possible outside of the city. And I think a way that cities thrive today is they become places of refuge to which minority groups and individuals can come and thrive when it works well. And today we see that politically and economically pressed peoples of the world have needed to move from their homeland and have moved to Southampton and other cities of the UK. And in the sovereignty of God, it may be that Southampton is the place where many refugees and internationals find love and hope and peace as they come to know God and find a home with his people. That's a particular vision I have for this city. But lastly, I want to point out to you and remind you that even though there was a renewal movement under Nehemiah and Ezra in the 5th century BC, the reforms changed the city somewhat until there was another humiliation and another occupation. And the reforms didn't change people's hearts and the book of Nehemiah, as we'll see, ends with quite an anticlimax as he goes around pulling out people's hair and beating people up. But it's Jesus who is the ultimate Nehemiah. When Jesus died, his last words were, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's a cry of completion and victory Something that you would cry if you have scaled Mount Everest. It is finished. I've done it. Those were the words that Jesus died with. Tetelestai. And it's in the perfect tense, which means that the effects of his work continue. Jesus' finished work in his life and his death 
means that you and I don't have to work for salvation. Salvation isn't something we do, it's something that is done to us. And so the gospel isn't good advice, it's good news. And the good news is that Jesus has finished the work. He's paid the price that we all owed for sin. And he's forgiven our sins when we come to him. And he's made us right with God. And he makes us citizens of a new Jerusalem. And his vision for this new Jerusalem is a city that is cosmopolitan and alive and thriving, where poverty has been made history, where the glory of the nations are brought in. Read the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where you read about this city coming from heaven to earth. And the tree of life heals the nations. And the the world we all want comes to pass, where there are no more tears and there is no more night and no more fear and no more Jew or Gentile or slave or free or any other racial or hierarchical division. Hebrews 13, 14 says, here we do not have a permanent city, but we seek one to come. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on that city and the one who makes us citizens of it. So may a vision for that city fuel our vision and renew our urgency and bring us unity as we partner God in building the walls of salvation here in Southampton.